single central argument, so you know, there's a lot of little arguments along the way. Um, and what I'm going to do in a, in a sense is go back and forth over pretty much the same set of issues, but three different ways. I'll, I'll pretend they're three different ways. Um, and I, so, so I'm looking at three trends. One is what I've called hybridity, and what I really called it, various people have called it, but uh, I'm using the term here, hybridity of uh, defense sectors, armed forces in other words, um, maybe now's the time to say that I'm focusing specifically on armies, not on the police and related sort of internal security organizations. Um, I'm going to look at duality of the military in a number of Arab states and what I learned from that. Uh, and finally come to political activism, in other words, uh, what I think is a heightened political profile or increasingly active political profile of, of the army in various parts of the Arab region. Um, 
And inevitably, much of what I say under any of these three headings touches on the others, so probably I'll say a lot at first and then a lot less at the end. Um, the now, defense sectors, by which I mainly mean the armed forces themselves and associated institutions, defense ministries, border guards, sometimes the gendarmerie or constabulary, whatever it is, we don't need to worry too much about it, uh, just in case I use the terms and yeah, they're interchangeable. Um, generally speaking, defense sectors in our countries have gone through a lot of changes and transformations over the past, let's say, 20, 30 years, certainly since the end of the Cold War. That, of course, took the Soviet Union out as a major source of military technology, hardware, training, doctrine, etc. Um, you know, the triumph of liberal capitalism, whatever that meant, uh, increased relations with the West. and. Arab militaries are part of that sort of global system as well. They've got, in a way, their own parallel system, the fraternity, which comes with its norms and values and culture and all sorts of things, with variations. But inevitably, massive changes in the international arena, whether they're legal, you know, constitutional, technological, ideational, etc., inevitably influence how armies behave, see themselves, see their societies, see their role. But there's also been other things going on in the same period. One is what was called the revolution in military affairs, armies that could now fight with fewer manpower, for instance, with higher tech systems uh, from long distances over the horizon, so they didn't have to fight face to face. Things have been happening that have transformed how armies, certainly more advanced armies, use force, project force. With that comes also, has come shifts in values. So for instance, a greater concern loss of lives, at least of friendly lives, in Western armies, uh, whereas in other parts of, of the Arab region, the, the concern with one's own soldiers or one's own friendlies isn't maybe quite as central to how armies fight and organize and structure themselves. And then we've got, finally under that heading of changes, um, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, uh, which by, two, well, from 2000 onwards, started to reshape uh, quite a few Arab armies as well as Arab internal security forces. The, the trends we know in the West, uh, you see especially visibly in places like the US, but elsewhere, are uh, the militarization of the police. Well, we also have the transformation of military units into constabulary units, i.e. they take on more and more of a role in uh, urban centers, which in most Arab countries have become huge sprawling areas, uh, pose their own challenges. Uh, special forces uh, trained, maybe armed more likely than regular forces with tanks and heavy things like that, that are sort of useless fighting terrorism. So these kinds of things have been happening worldwide and started to filter through into the region, uh, but with the slightly ironic twist that as of the last few years, certainly very visibly in the last two with the advent of the Trump administration in the US, we've got a post-counterterrorism focus in which many armies uh, worldwide, the major armies, the US, Europe, Russia, are back to thinking about big war, big army war, i.e. they're now retooling to fight each other again, and the, the focus on counterterrorism, asymmetric warfare, these various terms some of you may have heard, um, is actually retreating. So there's an irony that Arab armies that have started shifting over the last 20 years and privileged elite counter-terrorist units um, at the expense of, say, 80% of the bulk of their armed forces that just sit there 
doing guard duty with aging tanks and aging armored vehicles. Now they're finding that the world has shifted yet again. And of course, we're talking here about budgets, about technology, about industry, about investment in supply chains, spare parts, the training, the information networks and navigation systems, cyber warfare, all these things that have become central to how an advanced army operates. Arab armies now have to catch up quickly with all of this. And that poses all sorts of challenges uh, that, that I might touch on here and there we can come back to in a later discussion. So this is the very broad context. Um, my interest is not technical or tactical, i.e. in sort of what weapons people use or what tactics they use. I'm more interested, I guess I best sort of state this now, in what's going on in Arab states and their societies, or the relationship between states and societies, which touches on, of course, other things such as the economy, the political economy, of how people generate capital and use it and what they use it for, since part of what they use it for is the acquisition of the means of violence um, and the maintenance of those means and the upgrading of those means. So for me, much of what I'm going to talk about tonight really comes back to the question of Arab states and their crisis, uh, the crisis we see in many, many different ways, the crisis of identity, of the social contract, of uh, finances, of what they're there for, who they're for, who they're against internally within their own societies, or vis-a-vis -vis their neighbors and far neighbor and far you know, further powers. Now, in the midst of this, I'll start talking about hybridity. And this is a term that people have started to use over the past few years in relation to security forces or military forces in countries like Libya <coughs> and elsewhere, where uh, militias emerged, whether state-sponsored or anti-state, but where militia, militias became uh, important political as well as military actors. And a big dilemma post, for instance, in Libya, post uh, the, the, the fall of Muammar Gaddafi, was he suddenly had anywhere from 30,000 revolutionaries to 200,000, all claiming to have fought the dictator, and who now claim the right to a salary, to recognition, to legal status, to a pension, to bear arms, to be part of some sort of formal institution. And there was a huge question of, what do you do with all these people? And I think of the various options that might have come up, probably some of the worst were chosen, one of which was to institutionalize many of the militias and to say, all right, you don't like the army, you don't like the old police, you don't want to join them, even though now they're under new management. Um, they started to want to retain their own autonomous uh, status, which of course then has reflections for their political capital, their social capital, etc. But ultimately the answer there was to say, we'll set up a parallel structure, the Libya shields and other structures of the kind, which were recognized as official state-sponsored, state-funded, state-legitimized military and security <coughs> actors. And you end up with two militaries, two armies, and two formal police forces, totally formal, and funded by the state. Now that was regarded as an early instance of hybridity. So hybridity here, the hybridity I'm interested in, is one in which um, we're, I'm mainly looking at armed actors who might be the regular army and police as it happens, but also others who have emerged in a more informal way in the midst of civil wars, the breakdown of the state, as in Syria or Yemen and elsewhere, or maybe have been sponsored for years by the regime, the ruling party, or the, the government itself, as in Syria, 
or as in Iraq, or as in Libya and elsewhere, where even under Saddam Hussein, or under Hafez al-Assad, or under Muhammad Qadhafi, Ali Abdul Saleh, etc., the state deliberately, not simply tolerated, but actually actively sponsored or funded, more discreetly or less so, um, semi-state actors, non-state armed actors. And these could be tribal, they could be regional, they could be party-based, Fida'iyin Saddam, the defense companies of Syria, the Ba'ath Party militia, uh, Sudan has the same, quite a few countries in the region have had these kinds of armed forces that were allowed to operate by the state itself, sometimes in order to bear the burden of fighting insurgents or others, as in, let's say, Algeria, where the army, rather than take the full brunt of the fighting against the jihadists in the 1990s and onwards, created a village guard, which was to fight on behalf of the state and was armed and trained, of course, by the state and the army. Uh, Turkey did the same in Southeast Turkey to fight the PKK. Um, so I'm talking about that kind of hybridity, not the usual thing where you know militias are this evil, how do we get rid of them, full stop. I'm actually interested in the area that's a bit grayer, where in many of these Arab countries right now, we're looking at various kinds of armed actors that are not totally out of the law um, and yet not formalized either. So this, this broad um, picture, one thing I'm saying about it is, I've started to say so far, is that in the past, hybridity, uh, in the manner I'm describing it, has been pretty much a top-down affair, where the Ba'ath Party in Syria or in Iraq or Omar Bashir or whoever in Sudan and others uh, deliberately created militias or tolerated them. Um, but what we've had in the last decade or so, a bit more than a decade, is more of a bottom-up process, where as central state institutions have weakened, as their control has deteriorated over their territory and society, as they've been unable to pay salaries, uh, they've privatized or devolved responsibility for various public goods, some of which include security and policing. Um, other actors have come to fill the void, and these have been hostile to the state in some cases, not so hostile in others. But this has been a more organic process, if you like, more bottom-up, where uh, these actors have come in to provide services. And this could happen uh, through tribes. Uh, in the 1990s, Iraq under the sanctions, um, the weakening of the central state and the fact that it ran out of money meant that it couldn't maintain the same kind of relationship with its population in terms of uh, paying salaries, imprisoning people, forcing compliance. So what Saddam Hussein did, among other things, was to devolve policing power back to the clan elders, reviving their role as clan elders, and saying basically, you keep your men in line, as far as, you know, keep them loyal, no one must plot against me. But in return, you re regain much of your social power over the clan. And that was a you know, clear devolution of control over men with guns. And you know, there are many other examples of this. So what's come out of hybridity is um, three things. Um, one, and we see this very much in places like Yemen, where we have strange coalitions emerging of bits of the armed forces, especially in countries where the armed forces are broken down, like in Yemen. So you have different segments fighting on different sides in alliance with different militias. So in Aden and Aden, uh, under the Hadi government, for instance, backed by the UAE, you'll have 
um, southern militias, many of which want independence, on the same side as Islah Party or others fighting the Houthis, and then remnants of the <coughs> proper, the formal Yemeni army, which were allied with the Houthis now, following the, the, the murder of assassination of Ali Abdullah Saleh by the Houthis, you end up with uh, Tariq Saleh in the south fighting alongside these militias back against the Houthis with their own remnants of the army. So we see this pattern in Syria, we see it in Iraq, we see it in various places where you have these sort of rather chaotic or you know, um, somewhat uh, organic uh, alliances. These alliances, secondly, are very fluid. Uh, I just described one fluid case where parts of the Republican army um, end up first on, on the side of the rebels, the Houthis in Sana'a, against the supposedly legal president, legitimate president, Hadi, and then switching sides again on the side of Hadi against the people in Sana'a. And this fluidity, uh, I think, is quite typical. And I tie this partly to something interesting that, well, I find it interesting that unlike most military forces and police forces for that matter, um, these armed actors tend to, they, well, they operate nominally under the legitimate umbrella of this or that government. So you're either fighting under the Sana'a government and deeming it legitimate, or fighting under the Hadi government, which has no power in reality inside Yemen at all, and most of the time sits in Riyadh. Uh, you have the same, you know, with the Damascus government not really controlling much of Syria for much of the past war, past few years of war, uh, and then an interim government based in Turkey that didn't really exercise much power on the ground, an Islamic salvation government in Idlib run by al-Qaeda allies. So you have many different claimants to being the government with their associated alliances of military forces, which are both part army, regular army, part militia, and irregular. Um, but what's happened is, in my view, is that many of these uh, military alliances fighting nominally for this government or that don't actually do much governance. And that's curious because in the past it's been typical that the government fighting on one side will try to maintain effective government in its areas of control, and those fighting against it try to create a revolutionary governance on the other side in liberated zones or whatever you want to call them, that, that is equally effective, that does things like tax people or control trade or do various things. I mean, the Islamic State did that, for instance, in the parts of Syria and Iraq that it controlled. It did that very much so. But here we have armed actors that don't bother themselves much with governance in the civilian sense of providing civil administration, taxation, uh, controls, market price controls, whatever. Um, and that's not because the governments they work for are particularly effective. I mean, this is the, the dilemma that no one is doing governance well. So we have a net decline of governance in the sense of provision of basic civil, civilian goods, uh, including security. Um, and and uh, so poor governance along with the erosion of security itself because that's not being done well by these actors either. Um, I, I need to move on, so I'll, I'll stop with that. The next thing I want to talk about a little is duality. And by this I mean a very closely related phenomenon, but not necessarily exactly the same. And that is the trend also in quite a few Arab states towards 
having dual military institutions, i.e. the formal army, the formal military, the state-sponsored army, um, is increasing in several cases is, is two, not one. The most recent example of that is the Hashid Chavi, the popular mobilization units in Iraq, which started out as a sort of volunteer militia or coalition of militias uh, in order to fight the Islamic State. Now, just over two years ago, the Iraqi parliament formalized the PMU as a state agency, making it part of the Ministry of Defense while reporting more directly to the Prime Minister, I believe, Renald Mansour is in the audience and can correct me if I need it, if needed. Um, what's, what's interesting about this is these, the PMU are regarded as militias with everything negative that connotes for many people, i.e. they're sort of not under proper rule of law, they don't really account to anyone, they're also, some of them are pro-Iranian, we don't want that, do we, etc. So they're, they're problematic uh, in, many, in many ways for many people. But what the Iraqi government did was to legitimize them, to make them a state agency. Uh, Lebanon has something like that with the dual military of having Hezbollah, which is not recognized as a state agency, but nonetheless is treated as a legitimate reality, a de facto reality, is left alone, and is recognized and legitimized through the means of the conference, uh, the National Dialogue Conference for uh, National Defense Strategy, or whatever it's called, Hirwan Watani. Um, and so, in a sense, all the different political factions, including those that are hostile to Hezbollah, treat it as a legitimate partner through the dialogue conference. Uh, Yemen had pretty much the same thing with its own national dialogue when it was trying basically to deal with all these different armed actors, southern, the Houthis, tribal, and the so-called central army. Um, the, the trend, I think, in many of these countries over you know, in the foreseeable future, I think, is that for those that finally reach some sort of peaceful outcome, um, they're going to end up with de facto or de jure dual militaries. I think this is the trend. And why that is, and that's sort of the heart of the matter for me, is that we're talking about nation states or territorial states that no longer are in agreement about their identity, where there's no longer any clear commitment or agreement on an overarching constitutional framework, be that the Bible, the Quran, the secular constitution, whatever, i.e. a means for regulating conflict and making sure conflict is conducted peacefully, not violently. That's what constitutions or their equivalents are for in most countries. These countries, Lebanon is an example, I think Palestine, I would argue Egypt, but we can come back to that later, um, that the constitution no longer is the true arbiter uh, or, 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 or umpire in regulating social and political relations. And therefore, force and the means of force are no longer under any single overarching framework either. Um, I'm going to be touching on that at the very end, but here I'm, I'm simply trying to say that the erosion of what the state is and what the state does, the fact that many people in Iraq or Syria or Lebanon and others at one level may still think they are Syrians or Iraqis or Lebanese and hold on to some idea of what that means for them, but then have very deep disagreements on what that state should be, whether it should be aligned with Iran or against Iran, with the US or against Israel, or etc. 
um, the social contract, if it ever was a contract, has ceased to exist in countries that no longer can provide basic uh, adequate levels of public goods, public services. Where in a country like Iraq, in the first 10 years after the US invasion, uh, the Iraqi government failed to build a single new hospital or a single new power plant. <coughs> and this is a country that still suffers massively from all these you know, health problems, electricity shortages, and so on. So where's the social contract in that? Um, so I'm talking about, I, I'm suggesting at least, and this is something I haven't got clear answers for, but that we're looking at a deeper process of change of, in the state itself. This state that emerged in the post-Ottoman Empire period a century ago is now going through a transformation at some deep level I can't quite put my finger on, but I think goes beyond all the changes of ruling power from the colonial era to the immediate independence era of the era of the 40s to the era of revolutions and coup d'etat to socialism, nationalization, huge changes in the political regime. But the nation state was sort of carried over like a baton from one runner to the next. I don't think it was as much in question as it is today. And my prism for saying this is when I look at how armed force is organized and what it means politically, socially, symbolically, when, when this shows that it is no longer a unitary thing, that says to me that the state above it and the society behind it are no longer unitary in, in a pretty deep way. Um, where that goes, I don't know. Um, how you fix it, well, I might have some technical ideas we can come back to later. But most of all, what this leaves us with, so that I can start wrapping up, um, is a few things. And usually where I start looking at the politics more and more directly. Um, one thing, and I'm, I'm going to sort of bridge my remarks about duality with implications for political activism by armies. Um, so one thing I'm, I'm suggesting here is that the idea, I mean, of course, the Weberian idea of this state, the ideal uh, state being one that has a monopoly on the legitimate means of violence or use of force, is you know, it's, it's, it's now commonly accepted that it's probably never been true 100% anywhere. So you know, we'll put that aside. But right here, um, there's a, a, a big problem, I think, for Western governments, certainly Western audiences, and obviously some Arab audiences as well, to accept something hard, which is there's this idea that we have to put, of course, the state back together again as a unitary state, but we also have to put the army back together again as a unitary institution. The idea that you could have two armies seems so fundamentally, I don't want to say wrong, so much as contrary to our idea of having a single state. I mean, if you've got a single state, then how can you have two armies? But the reality is, I think, that political settlements following tough wars, civil conflict, breakdown, etc., sometimes political settlements can only happen with the consecration, the formal sort of institutionalization of duality. Because it's hard to imagine that people emerging from years of dictatorship or brutality, autocratic rule, whatever, in some of these Arab countries, have very problematic perceptions of the central state, are really nervous about anyone they regard as hostile, another community, another ethnicity, another tribe, whatever, taking state power, well, whether through parliamentary, elect, parliamentary elections or through some other means, 
and then using that power once again to you know repress to uh, to, to kill to imprison etc so there's a very there are all sorts of reasons why a lot of people in the region are very nervous about the restoration of central state power because that central state power might then want to use its power against them and of course there are others who want the restoration of state power precisely because they expect the state to then crush other communities, sectors, classes that they regard as threatening. And we've seen that as part of the backlash in places like Egypt or Tunisia and others to the Arab Spring. The perception of insecurity has become uh, resulted in a, in, a, in a situation where governments were no longer measured, I mean their legitimacy wasn't measured, by their adherence to democratic practice and human rights and citizens' rights but whether they were tough on those who were seen as threatening. So this has become uh, something of the consequence um, in, in, in this particular context. Now, so settlements, political settlements that end conflicts might involve agreement on having more than one army. And that's exactly what we've got in Iraq. And so for Western governments that go about this in the way of Militias are, by nature, problematic. We don't like militias. We need a proper professional army. And moreover, these are Iranian militias. We don't want that. You end up where that agenda goes against something else, which is that, like it or not, in terms of political reality, if you want to get somewhere in Iraq, that's going to be, like it or not, reality for some time to come. The PMU are not going away. And they reject all calls to integrate them into the army on the grounds of technocratic professionalism or whatever else you might want to put forward. Because it's a fundamentally political as well as a social and ultimately political economic uh, dynamic going on. And I expect the same in a different form maybe, but the same in Syria um, and elsewhere. Now, just so you don't think this is some sort of aberration, this is an abnormality, other Arab states and non-Arab states have had dual militaries for a very long time. Saudi Arabia has a National Guard and a regular army. We tend to think of Iran having two armies, yes, the Pasdaran, the Revolutionary Guard, and the army, and they do. And that's become highly institutionalized. But Saudi Arabia has had this for even longer. Sudan has it. Oman has it. Each with its own historical you know, trajectory. Countries in the West have dual militaries of one kind or another. They also have hybrid militaries or security forces. The USA is a prime example. With 32,000 separate police forces, A, but going back to the military, a National Guard, that is an army, under the rule of the independent states, except in specific emergencies when the federal government may control the National Guard. That's a dual military, too. We accept it, we understand it, we see it as okay and safe and not threatening. But I'm just pointing out that this is a highly historical process. Um, where does this leave us, finally, in terms of the politics? Well, I'll uh, emphasize uh, very briefly a few things and leave it there for discussion. Um, one is something I started out with uh, implicitly, and that is that violence has become, in this context, a means of politics. It's the medium, the currency of politics. You want to do politics, at the very least, you need to possess an organized armed force. Otherwise, who are you? I mean, if you're going to compete in the Iraqi parliament or Lebanese parliament or elsewhere, you need to have some sort of armed force behind you. It's, it's implicit, at least, if not more. Um, 
And, and I think that's one consequence of the breakdown of what I call the overarching constitutional understanding. Um, and that, of course, means that there's always a risk of violence and conflict, or it means institutionalizing these dualities and hybridities and making them part of permanent settlements with, in a sense, making permanent equally the threat to social peace and to long-term stability. So I'm not saying it's a great outcome. I'm just saying there, there are these two sides to it. Um, but another consequence, and I'll stop there, is that armed actors, I won't just say armed forces, i.e. the state's armed forces, but armed actors generally that have come under this umbrella of legalization, legitimization, whatever it may be, um, that they have become political actors in a more overt, visible sense than we've been used to for a very long while. In other words, since pretty much 1970-71, which is the moment when most Arab states gained dominance over their armies in various ways in most Arab countries, uh, implemented over the following decades coup-proofing measures designed to keep their armies either loyal or monitored, uh, dis dis sort of disjointed so that they couldn't collaborate and conspire against the rulers. All these things that happened for 40 years and the involvement of the military in the economy and various kinds of vested interests. Um, this worked for a very long time. But we, we now, and over the last decade or so, are, I think are back in a, in a historical phase where those who bear guns are not simply bearing guns on behalf of political masters, but are themselves political agents. And I, I have a very hard time thinking of a single Arab state that, in which the military isn't somehow a political actor. Morocco, maybe, we know so little about the army there. Uh, it has had, uh, definitely had a political past. That's maybe one case where it's not so obvious what's going on. But I'd, I'd really find it very hard to argue that any other case, any other Arab state, the army is not integral to the political system, to political power, the, sh the form varies. In the UAE or in Saudi Arabia, you might find that the army is closely integrated with the ruling family. There's no immediate clash between them or between society. That doesn't mean, though, that the army, uh, and because the army isn't a wholly independent, autonomous actor compared to the ruling family, that doesn't mean it's not a political actor. But it's just so deeply integrated that its politics, in a way, are part and parcel of the politics of the UAE, to take that one example. So um, I'll stop there. Um, take it any way we, we can, I guess, in the next uh, hour or so. Great, thank you very much. Um, I know there are going to be a lot of questions, um, so I don't want to be too selfish, but I have one myself. Um, so uh, yes, the word hybridity is something that comes up a lot now with respect to um, security sectors, military forces, um, militias in the Middle East. It used to be the phrase was security sector reform. You don't hear that so much these days. And it seems to be a reflection of a recognition amongst Western policymakers predominantly that there is no ultimate goal of there, the end is not in sight. There isn't the same uh, vision of what of what we're trying to get to with respect to our militaries. And maybe that's because um, how can Western nations, whose really only model is the barbarian model of statehood, guide other countries towards a different vision of hybridity, if that is where they're destined? 
And I recognize, you mentioned, you know, even the United States has a duality of, of military security forces. But yes, it's been a historical process, but it's not an evolutionary process, and it's not as if our countries are headed in the same direction. Ultimately, there's no question about uh, where authority lies, and that is the main difference, I'd say. So are, should we be considering, completely reconsidering the role that um, that Western development agencies, security agencies should have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we take that first. Yeah. Um, right, well, big challenge there. Um, tough question. I think what's interesting about the whole debate, uh, you're right, so security sector reform has um, lost a bit of its luster and uh, we don't hear about it as much, which is probably a mistake. But for me, what's most interesting in that question about um, Western government and development practice is that partly we're up against um, Western governments in particular and many of the people who want to do good in this part of the world, uh, the Arab part of the world, um, you know, come with a, with a liberal and what I think of as a liberal institutional agenda, i.e., well, A, I mean, this is probably my pet, one of my pet peeves, so I'm using your question to go where I want, um, <laughs> is, is the idea that, um, well, so reforming security agencies is an enormously political thing, enormously. I mean, people with guns are the basis of power, and anyone in power is, at least implicitly, of course, relying on the fact that they've got men, in some cases women, with guns at their command. Um, and someone coming along to try and mess with that is going directly at the heart of political power. And that's why, of course, post-2011, in countries like, um, well, whether it was Egypt and Tunisia or Yemen and Libya, those who came to power after the Arab Spring um, all tried to handle their police and armed forces, but in two mainly different ways. In Egypt and Tunisia, they tended to try and appease them and avoid you know, antagonizing them, you could say, roughly. Uh, whereas in Libya and Yemen, much more broken down political systems, the rival political actors tried to take over the police and the military as assets in their political power struggles. And so the, the armed forces became an arena for conflict for contestation, which ended up in deepening the divide and the breakdown, rather than repairing it after you know, Ali Abdullah Saleh or Muhammad Qadhafi had left power. So um, the um, part of the problem is, so, so clearly they understood that this is very political, and anyone coming along with any kind of reform agenda is touching on something hugely political. That's besides getting into things like what the armies feel about reform, i.e. for them it means you're taking away the defense budget, maybe they already feel that their salaries are inadequate, pensions are inadequate, this is a huge problem in Arab countries, and the last thing they want is these civilians coming along and talking about their budget because they think that means they're going to take it away, and so on and so forth. So the problem is when Western SSR advocates approach security sector reform or, dem or military reform in Arab countries, is the extent to which this has been depoliticized, is understood as a technical process, a technocratic process. 
And it's unfortunate that the promotion of a liberal agenda or its translation into a liberal institutional agenda, by which I mean you codify it and turn it into best practices and you know routine measures and modalities and mechanisms and skills and transferable skills and objectively verifiable indicators and all these wonderful words. Um, this is what the institutionalism part is of liberalism. What it ends up doing in this instance is it depoliticizes something that needs to be politically neutral, it's true, in the sense of we have to approach change in the military in a way that says we're not doing this in order to kill each other or to fight you or to you know defeat this community or that community. In that sense, it has to be politically neutral. But the idea that the process itself can be depoliticized is, is dumb, if not much worse. So that's one problem. The technocratic approach, again, means that we're, the measures we set up for these things are, you know, sort of teaching mid-level management skills. The problem is, of course, in the Iraqi army or in the Syrian army, if you look at the Syrian army's uh, curriculum in military education, it's not a bad curriculum. I mean, when it comes to military curricula, you know, they're sort of pretty much of a muchness. I mean, there's not a huge range. It's not like bad authoritarian governments teach their military curriculum which say how to be a baddie. I mean, it's not like that. They teach them natural sciences and physics, and they teach them international law, and maybe even human rights. But in Syria, cadets understand that if they want to get, a, get ahead in a military career, it's not doing well in physics or maths that counts, or ballistics or whatever it is. It's knowing the right people or bribing the right people. In Iraq, the army collapsed in 2014 because a lot of officers bought their commissions, bought their way into military school. So no amount of mid-level management skills training or you know, learning how to use Linus or Excel will change any of that. So that, in a way, is, well, that's a bit of my rant. Um, the other thing I want to come in there, because again, coming back to Western governments or non-Western, Russia, Iran, others who are involved in these countries' armed forces directly, <coughs> is one consequence I didn't touch on, but one of the big problems with the hybridity, one reason why it's so deep a problem and it's unlikely to go away, is that um, the, the, the proliferation of many armed actors and fragments has become a vector for external powers to exercise influence. By adopting and supporting this or that militia or fragment of the former army in South Yemen or in Sana'a, in Lebanon or in Syria, Iran or Saudi Arabia, Turkey or the USA, the UK and others have become part and parcel in, inside the equation in that country. They're not external anymore in the real sense. So in a way, they're enabling these armed actors to maintain themselves and to lay claim and to uh, gain weight in internal power balances that exceed their true strength and therefore negotiate political settlements on that basis or economic interests or whatever it might be. Um, and it also means that these countries have what we have to think of as constrained sovereignty. I mean, how sovereign truly is Iraq's government today when Trump can think of saying, well, we're going to use this, we've got this huge base in Iraq, it's this great real estate, it's enormous. Be ashamed not to use it. Why don't we use it a little bit to watch Iran? And of course, the Iraqi government had to officially oppose this and deny it and protest and so on. 
But the fact is, do they have any real control over what US forces do inside their base? No. Does the status of forces agreement actually, you know, is it how enforceable is it? We don't really know. How sovereign is the Syrian state today? I don't know. Well, not much. So sovereignty, I mean, so we talk about the governments, Western governments, but they're operating at many levels. Uh, Non-Western governments are operating at all these levels. They'll have a formal relationship at one level where nothing will go to the Kurdish Peshmerga in Erbil except through Baghdad. Well, it wouldn't until about a year or two ago. Uh, so we maintain Baghdad's sovereignty as Iraq. And at the same time, of course, Western governments are still doing something else at another level. Uh, the US basically has its own proxy in the Iraqi army, which is, what is it, the Golden Division, the counterterrorism unit, 10, 12,000 men, highly trained who basically don't answer to the Army Command, to the Ministry of Defense, to the Prime Minister. They answer to the Americans. The Iranians have their proxy. So is this going to go away soon? Well, it's going to get harder just because I don't think the US will let go as long as they think this is a way of countering Iran, and Iran aren't going to let go as long as it's a way of countering the US, and so on and so forth. Where in all that we end up with policy approaches, I think my interest is saying, how can, say, the Iraqi or Lebanese or Syrian or Egyptian or other armies start shifting things like, you know, what is their, what is their commitment to the rule of law? What law? Uh, when will we have uh, an Arab military where, say, an officer or a non-commissioned officer, a listed person, will receive an order to open fire in a civilian neighborhood and say that is an illegal order? Now, I don't see anything in what Western governments provide in the way of training, which is supposed to provide that kind of professionalism and that kind of commitment to that norm. But I don't see a genuine transmission mechanism that goes from stated intentions of Western governments or NATO and others who work with Arab armies and how that translates into actual practice by these Arab armies. And I'm not blaming the West for all this. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, they've got bigger interests elsewhere. So if Egypt is so vital in, you know, whatever, uh, cordoning off Gaza and providing Israel security, and Egypt's too big to fail, we can't afford it to go into chaos, therefore we will put up with A, B, C, D, and E, and we will continue to provide weapons and training and, you know, applaud Sisi's commitment to democracy. This is, I'm, I'm quoting verbatim from EU statements and, and others. Um, so there's that going on. And there's what happens at a military-to-military level going on. And, of course, intelligence-to-intelligence level. There's what defense companies, private and public, in the West or in Russia or in China, India and other places, do with Arab counterparts that are developing their own industries, whether in the UAE or Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and, of course, Egypt and elsewhere. So can we come up with an agenda that encompasses all that and that's still liberal and actionable, i.e. can be put into some sort of practice. I'm, I'm, sort of, uh, I'm, I'm meant to be doing that kind of thing in my own job. <laughs> that was a big question. Uh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> that, um, okay, I'm going to open it up. I know there are a lot of people who have questions. And um, if you wouldn't mind stating your name and affiliation and keep your questions, uh, just that, questions please, rather than extended comments. Um, uh, we'll take a few at the time, and I think we're going to start um, over there with Francis and uh, Aisha. Um, and the micro microphone will come to you. Francis. 
Hi, Franz Selch from uh, Exeter British Library. Thank you for your very interesting talk and presentation. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more, we touched on federalism, and federalism in some ways is being raised as sort of part of the liberal interventions in peace, peace building and so on, and particularly in Iraq, but also in other places possibly. I wonder if you could say a bit more about how you see that because obviously this, this, this brings in that the nature of state, the state is not a unitary state, it might be a unified state, but in some ways sovereignty in the federal sort of panoply of tools, you have constitution and, and, and sort of division of powers. I just wonder if you could say a little bit more about that in relation to armed sectors and how that, that whether that is a potential for uh, conflict management, how you see that. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, that's my main question. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Um, excellent presentation. Um, and fact is that militaries, um, Middle Eastern countries have had several militaries, not just two. I mean, they've used in Saudi Arabia, except where they've always depended on mercenaries from outside, from Pakistan <coughs> and wherever to fight their wars. My very two brief questions, this is one. We look at, we understand that states are weakening and crumbling all over the Middle East. But there has also been, is it just a change in Middle East or the Western conception of the Middle East? Because there is also that greater acceptance of this high hybridity, we call it. It's not just limited to uh, Middle East, Middle East, but greater Middle East. Middle East. I mean, look at Afghanistan, where US is very eager to accept the Taliban instead of uh, actually fighting the war. And my second question is that, on one hand, you have breakdown and questionable performance of the military, yet there is also um, a demand for, increasing demand for, a struggle for nuclear weapons, new technology. So how does that fit in? How will this hybridity uh, handle that? Okay, maybe we'll, we'll stick with those and then... Yeah, as you want. Both very interesting questions. Um, and all both sort of go to that level I'm, I'm most interested in of um, how we relate all of this to the deeper and wider changes, you know, at the level of the state and of system. Um, the, I mean, I, I well, the, the question about federalism is, is, is a great question, um, and it can be uh, a means for conflict management, obviously. I mean, it's, it's, it's specific to each context, and we've already heard, of course, a lot about Iraq, also about Syria. Um, various levels of autonomy for regions or for the Kurds in Syria. Um, I'm, I'm going to sidestep whether or not federalism is a good or better or best actual solution in any of these places. I mean, I think um, there, there, there are a lot of different possible outcomes, right? And what I'm more interested in is how the linkage between how eventually armed forces organized 
and how that correlates with the structure of the political system that emerges from a settlement. So, you know, um, so for instance, takes now you you mentioned Iraq, and and Iraq is an obvious one where certainly in the case of the Kurds, uh, post Gulf War nineteen ninety one and ever since they created all but an independent state with their own military, intelligence services, police, etc., uh, and ministries, and so on. Now, that is a clear example of where a former unitary state has become federal, and how that is translated into a reasonably clearly defined and reasonably stable, not entirely, but reasonably stable uh, military division, where the Peshmerga, despite not actually being united and unified, um, are deemed a border guard, uh, a national guard, if you like, under the Iraqi constitution. So they're not actually an army, but in reality they are. Um, now that's one side, one side of the spectrum. But then if you were to go to Syria, where people have wondered whether they'd be partition or federalism or whatever, we have something rather different, where in a way addressing the question of what to do with the armed forces that have emerged from the conflict may drive or limit what can be done politically. I mean, we know that the Assad regime is opposed to uh, granting significant political autonomy to the Kurds, and certainly not explicitly or formally, you know, using the term political autonomy, and Turkey definitely doesn't want that. Um, but at the same time, you've got the reality of a force under Kurdish leadership that is at least 30,000 strong, better trained than much of the opposition was, more united uh, with its own sort of officer school, etc. Um, how do you reintegrate that into a Syrian state and into a Syrian military, especially given that the Syrian state remains so completely weak and fragile uh, financially as well as institutionally, infrastructurally, uh, where the army is also weak, uh, still has low professional capability, corrupt, etc. The Syrian state, the Syrian regime, would like to reach a stage where it can bring everyone under its umbrella unambiguously, and that when it comes to armed force, that that specifically has to be uniquely under its sole command. But it already has a situation where people from Damascus will admit, at least privately, that they don't control many of the militias that are now funded by Iran or by Russia, and that although these have been attached to formal army units, that they don't actually command them. So it's not inconceivable that down the line, somehow out of whatever becomes the political settlement, de facto or de jure in Syria, that you will have a distinct Kurdish-led force, call it a border guard, whatever else it is, in the northeast, that remains autonomous. Now whether then, you know, is it the horse or the cart first? I mean... Does, do the Syrians agree on some sort of autonomy formula that allows different regions to maintain their own local National Guard units, for instance? And then we'll simply call the Kurdish forces become the Hasaki National Guard versus the Druze National Guard in the south or whatever. Um, and that just becomes a way of hiding and fudging the issue. Or do you get formal federalism, and with it, Iraq style, you get a formally distinct military force? So I think that's the interesting thing for me, is, is how those two impact each other, rather than to... I, I, I'm not in a position to advocate any one formula. 
I'm only saying really my own, my own interest is that I find it very difficult to think that despite the desires and preferences of any of the major political actors in Syria or Lebanon or elsewhere who don't like having these other militias running around, that the longer term outcome, the medium term outcome at least, i.e. five to ten years, once there is peace, um, will be some sort of duality or multiplicity that is legitimized or recognized in some form. And so I think federalism as a formal constitutional arrangement probably won't happen in a place like Syria. It could happen in Iraq. Well, it already is there in Iraq. But I doubt it will extend to the other regions of Iraq. It could happen in Yemen. Um, hypothetically, it could happen in Libya, but I don't think it will. But I could be totally wrong. I'm not a Libyan expert. So it's moving on quickly to, uh, not quickly enough, to Aisha's question. Uh, I, I don't really have anything to say on the nuclear technology bit. I mean, I'm not sure that many armies in the region think much about that. Um, um, and I think that most of the nuclear issues dealt with at the level of top state leaders maneuvering to be on side with the Trump administration against Iran or some other kind of variation on that. And I haven't been following, to be honest. What, what's more um, prominent on the radar screen for militaries is things like cyber war, information war, etc., um, and where they're trying to tool up and get into that kind of thing. And here, not too surprisingly, maybe, it's the security services that are way ahead, uh, not the armed forces. And the armed forces are still way behind in terms of their own capability. They're just about starting to understand that they'd better have people working for them, maybe civilian contractors, who look at things. You know, until a year or two ago, some of them probably thought um, IT and cyber war, cyber issues were just about having a better website um, to do their PR. And they're very slowly catching up with what's really at stake here. But the security services, on the other hand, of course, are ahead. And you, you know, in some countries in the region, they know they don't have the indigenous capacity to develop the IT uh, sort of security resources they need. So they go to Israeli companies like Pegasus or you know, Israeli-initiated ones, which is what the UAE has done, or to European companies, which, say, Egypt has done. Um, so, you know, they buy in the know-how and get people to come in and design. And this is about surveillance and, you know, fighting dissidents and, and the like. So that, I think, is the nuclear war when it comes to uh, what I look at, anyway. Um, I'm, I, I may be missing something <coughs> big there, but that's my sense. Iran, Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. It was Iran, Saudi Arabia, mainly. Yeah, uh, but, but I think more interesting for me uh, on Saudi Arabia is that what Mohammed bin Salman has been doing as part of his striving to consolidate power in his hands is for the first time since the kingdom was established and a dual military emerged in Saudi Arabia, he's actually, for reasons of his own, starting to sort of bring disparate bits of defense and security forces together under one umbrella. And I think that's fascinating because that is a transformation of the Saudi state from being what Stefan Hertog, who's based here at the LSE, called um, something like well, fiefdoms or princely fiefdoms, that each prince has his own sort of mini-state with his own parallel uh, health system and, and administrative system, etc., as governor or as commander of this or that. The, the Saudi state is changing, I think, structurally at a deep level in ways that we haven't really paid enough attention to, and I see that through armed force. 
uh, I, I mean, on, on the changing region, uh, the whole world is changing. The challenges that we see and we can see sometimes more visibly in some Arab countries, the, the crumbling of the state or the social contract, etc., they're also happening in France, <coughs> in this country, in Italy, they're happening everywhere. But they don't necessarily end up in the same place, they don't follow the same trajectory, they don't lead to the same outcomes. Because we have very varied political, economic, institutional, constitutional arrangements that have emerged over time in the past, and that therefore respond to things like globalization, technology transfer, or counter-globalization, which we also now see in terms of trade policy, or movement of currency, or movement of information, or all these other things. All of human society everywhere is being shaped, you know, affected by this. And I think all our systems are showing deep problems of, of adapting. I mean, if you have large numbers of people in a place like France who think that disenfranch disenfranchising part of the, of, the, of the citizenry is legitimate and is more important than maintaining democratic norm, that's not in Zimbabwe, that's in France. And that is a fundamental you know, questioning of something we've taken a, for granted for 200 years, or at least for 70, which is that these are liberal democratic orders in which we uphold certain things. I'm not so confident anymore in you know, Hungary and in Poland, but even in France, or in Italy, just to mention a few countries I like a lot. But, you know. So um, yes and no. I mean, the Middle East, you're, you implied, I think, that the Middle East is changing, but not only the Middle East. But it's not just the greater Middle East. It's everywhere. But, but then it breaks down. I mean, from there on, what happens next in the USA or in Russia is not necessarily going to be what happens next in Libya or Egypt. Okay, um, so we have a couple of questions on this side of the room. Actually, if you have a question, put your hand up now, so I get a night, you do get an idea of you. Okay, um, so we can we start? Yeah, we do, we have time. Um, so uh, with the gentleman uh, there, and then uh, the next there and on, um, and then we had a lady with a scarf on there. So if we have you three first, please. <coughs> I have a question about uh, Sudan mm. and Egypt. I don't know if you can hear me. Can you hear yes. Me? Yeah. Uh, how do you see the uh, military in Sudan, I mean the army, the official sort of state army? Mm. Because historically the army in Sudan, say in 64 when they were ruling and there were civil unrest, they retreated and there was a democratic period for five years. In 85 the same thing happened and the army moved in and and there was another democracy. But in the latest protests in Sudan, which sustained for a much longer time than perhaps in April 85 when the first uprising happened, but the army didn't do anything. Uh, how do you see the army? Has it been taken over by the Islamist regime, displaced like much of the intelligence security services? Or how do you see it? Because for me, it's a black box. And also Egypt, because you didn't really talk about Egypt, so yeah. just shed some light on the military in Egypt and, and how do you <laughs> Because it really is also the last few years, you don't, you never really, I could never tell what, what the intentions were initially, how things evolved to where we are right now, because mm. it's just... Yeah. And then we had a question, yeah. Uh, 
name is Andy Simons. Is this on? Is it on? Yes. Right, okay. uh, my name is Andy Simons, a retired British Library curator. I have a question about corruption, and I'm not advocating it, but I see that it can, <laughs> it, it can reduce, as it, I think it did in Lebanon, reduce the number of militias. And can this happen elsewhere? Thanks. Um, and then the lady over there. It's going to presence tonight. My question, I guess, is about um, society's sort of trust in the police or the security forces. Um, and, you know, for example, in, in Palestine, where there, like, the police has limited access to certain areas, um, I wonder if there's other forms of sort of communal surveillance or communal policing. Um, communal sort of senses of care where the police and security forces don't have access to because they're not allowed in. Um, and you had mentioned before sort of other tribal forms or existing forms of sort of security structures that might have existed or still might exist. So other forms of hybridity um, that exist within the state structures. And I guess that might be more productive forms of policing and, secure, and offering security to citizens um, beyond these sort of structures of the state. And I guess the concern is that uh, you have, you know, this, the, the, the growth of these security forces, um, and if there's a way to sort of provide security to police and to societies that sort of bypasses these structures. Thank you, thanks. I'll keep it there for All right, all right. Um, gosh, well, Sudan, Egypt, I mean, I wish, I knew a lot more about Sudan, Sudan case because I think it's fascinating. I read Tim Niblock's work on the Sudanese army, which is at least 40 years old. Wonderful book. I've seen nothing like it since then, on Sudan or elsewhere for that matter. And I just wish there was more. Uh, and I haven't had the time to really focus. Um, so, but I, I think it, it, it definitely is bound to be you know, a great case study to look at because of the mixed heritage of sort of secular versus Islamist roles of the army uh, and the political alliances, the pragmatic and opportunistic political alliances it's made under Omar Bashir, first with Turabi and then against and so on. Um, it's also a case of duality where the popular defense forces became a sort of a, a regime maintenance force uh, while at the same time, of course, there was support for the Janjaveed militia and Darfur and you know all these sort of multiple actors and alliances going on. Uh, plus, there's, I, I've seen references to, although I, I've not been able to dig up any real information on the economic role of the armed forces. So there's a Sudanese, so it's like, well, in Yemen it's called YECO, the Yemen Economic Cooperation Organization or something, which was the investment fund Saleh used using military pensions. And the Sudanese have something called pretty much the same name but I have very little idea of just what it actually does, if it exists or not. Um, also, that's important, I think, because the Sudanese-Egyptian relationship that you touched on a bit is um, important. It's both a conflictual relationship, uh, has always been, for all sorts of reasons, but at the same time, the economic relationship is an interesting one because Egyptian companies, and mainly the Egyptian army and general intelligence, uh, working together, invest a lot in Sudan in raising livestock or growing feed and exporting meat, live or you know meat, to 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 Egypt, and so there are all sorts of relationships going cross border there that are very curious. 
Um, I don't know if also minerals and gold prospecting that happened on the Egyptian side in Halay and Shalatin area, that's the border. And whether there's something on the other side and who runs it and controls it, I'd be very interested to know. So Sudan, I'd love to know more. And if you can point me to anything, I'd be very grateful. Um, briefly on Egypt, I mean, <laughs> the, the Egypt alone could take several you know, sessions of this kind. Um, I'm finishing up a huge, didn't, it wasn't meant to be, but it is a huge report on uh, the Egyptian military economy I've been working on, on and off for seven years. And um, so, you know, sort of coming out of my ears, what would be maybe interesting right here to say about Egypt in this context and on the political role is this, that a lot is said about the Egyptians' inter army's intervention in the economy, taking over, controlling, owning, that's all fascinating and interesting. But what's, I think, really interesting and hugely worrying is Egypt has a massive problem uh, of politics. There are no politics in Egypt, right? I mean, the armed forces and the police, the new regime, whatever you want to call it, have eliminated all other political, social actors that could engage in politics. Um, this is something even Mubarak didn't do. So this is a very different system. To my mind, this makes Egypt more brittle than ever. Um, so it's, it's a fierce state, a strong state, brutal. I mean, we all should remember, of course, you know, the horrific murder of Julia Regeni, a student undertaking research in Egypt. And that, I think, you know, that is just typical of what the police can now do in, in, in Egypt and what other intelligence services do, including military intelligence, which is part of the army. But more, more to the point here, the Egyptian army has ended up in a very central position in governing Egypt, right? Or is, is perceived to govern Egypt and is therefore, in a sense, held to account in the public's eye. The public is very supportive of the army generally. I mean, there's a lot of going back to Catherine's question about social perception and trust. The army is regarded highly in Egypt still, despite everything. But the more it engages in direct forms of economic governance, in providing services, food at discounted prices, etc., the more likely it is to come into reputational damage and lose some of that trust. Um, so, and you know, it does sometimes crazy things because it doesn't have a real economic mind, like importing huge amounts of meat and chickens and chicken parts at discounted prices from, you know, Bulgaria or wherever, in order to show that it's providing food for the poor and keeping prices down, especially ahead of Ramadan, but now more or less year-round. But in doing so, it's undermining Egyptian chicken farmers and businesses and, you know, livestock farms, etc., at a time when the government is also claiming to try and support small and medium businesses because it's undercutting them. And this is seen as something that is a direct damage to these people. And so the army ends up doing things that are highly contradictory. And not necessarily with bad intention, but just because it, you know, it's got these clear priorities that are sort of political social at one level, but then go against what the country needs at another level. Um, but even more importantly is that down the line there will come a time I think when the Egyptian army, whoever that I mean by that, because you know, you know who thinks. When we say the Egyptian army wants or thinks or does, we mean probably Supreme Council of twenty officers or whatever, or maybe others. You know, various cliques and networks. 
when and as and when people concerned with the army's position in politics and the economy, this may be the president, maybe others, there will come a time when they need to reduce the profile of the, of the army. Now, when that happened in Chile under Pinochet or in, in Brazil between 64 and 74 when the army ruled, the army initiated Abertura in 74, the opening, because they decided for reasons of their own that they wanted to get out of the game. And what followed was a 10-year negotiation with political parties, big business, and other sectors, unions, and so on, because they existed in Chile too. You know, Pinochet didn't hand over to a vacuum. He handed over to Eduardo Frey and the Christian Democratic Party and so on. It was a negotiation. In Egypt, the army has left, the army and the police have left no one to negotiate with, no one to hand over to. So what I foresee in five, eight, ten years, who knows when exactly, is a, a regime that is increasingly um, sort of atrophied, that is unable to provide meaningful solutions for the deep social problems. This is a country with at least 25% illiteracy, where the, by the government's own admission, as of nearly three years ago, 28% of the population were in abject poverty. That's below the poverty line. And up to 50% total are at or below the poverty line in Egypt. This is a government that can't address this. So what will that, you know, what will the armed forces do down the line? Who will they talk to? Who will they hand over to? They've left no one. Uh, corruption, I, 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 you know, I mean, corruption could actually be a cure for all sorts of things. Who knows? I mean, it's, <laughs> let's say we have a highly normative attitude to, to corruption, which leads us into all sorts of bizarre situations and, and positions in, in, around the world where we'll go to enormous lengths to prevent any corruption, let's say, in aid to a foreign country. But then that aid, properly audited, transparent, monitored to the nth degree, ends up with, say, at least 40% going to the accountants and the consultants and so on. And of the 60%, another 40% probably goes to, you know, other intermediaries and interested parties. I worked a lot on Palestine, and it was estimated at one point that for every dollar of aid that went to the Palestinian Authority, which probably was subjected to the most intensive, pervasive scrutiny of international aid anywhere in the world, highly institutionalized mechanisms of observing every damn cent. Something like 40% went to Israel. That, you know. Now, that wasn't corrupt. But if Hamas could smuggle money into the Gaza Strip through Hawala and informal tithes and who knows what, and maybe lose 15% through what you would call corruption, the net benefit to the local economy was higher. For instance, I mean, I'm just being devil's advocate, so our notions of corruption are, you know, highly, uh, highly normative and highly emotional in a way. Now, I wouldn't advocate it, like, as he said, I wouldn't advocate it as a solution. But, um, but equally, I wouldn't say that it's what solved somewhere like the Lebanese War or uh, helped the militias disappear. I think there I would disagree with you. What I find very interesting in the case of Lebanon, post-89-92, the Taif Agreement that sort of tried to settle the political dispute and the Syrian intervention that moved <coughs> Al out of power and established a new status quo for good or for bad. What happened was the militias were offered the chance of joining the army and the police or of putting down their weapons and going back to civilian life. And all but four or five thousand out of around eighty thousand preferred the latter option. They didn't want to join the police or the army. They went away. 
Now that's fascinating, especially if you compare with, say, Libya, where up to 200,000 people signed on claiming they had fought Gaddafi and had, you know, had, had, had carried weapons and therefore were entitled and wanted to be on the payroll of the military and so the police. And this has all to do with the two different political economies. Lebanon, which uh, is much more of a laissez-faire economy, private sector, etc., incidentally has a very large civil service and a very large state sector too, so there's a bit of mythology there about Lebanon. And it's also a highly regulated in some ways and highly state-protected economy as well, so it's not as laissez-faire as people think. But um, for your regular militiaman, um, going back to working in the Gulf or in Libya or wherever was available back in the 1990s made a lot more sense than joining the army or the police. In Libya, however, where since the, the days of Sanusi, of the monarchy, up to 80% of the population lived off state funds, directly or indirectly. So it's very deep. It's a 60, 70-year-old pattern in Libya that somehow you derive your income from the state. And therefore, that was the automatic expectation post-2011. You know, we got rid of Qaddafi, but we still want the old pattern to endure. So, first of all, it wasn't corruption that resolved the problem in Lebanon. Lebanon is highly corrupt, yes, but that's not specifically what resolved the militia problem. Um, the other thing is, of course, that Le Lebanon is a great case of a country that you always think has to collapse at some point because the levels of corruption are so high and can't be sustained, and yet somehow Lebanon muddles along. On the other hand, Iraq, which has probably equally terrible levels of corruption, um, I think is managing a lot more poorly. Um, you know, they aren't actually coping with the corruption and with the social consequences of that and the political and violence consequences of that as well. So I don't think we can see corruption as performing better or worse necessarily in, in any one direction. Um, social trust I've touched on a little bit. I think generally in most Arab countries the armies are regarded with higher levels of, of confidence by the population generally speaking. Uh, typically of many other countries, parliament is held in very poor regard usually at the bottom of ranking in public surveys the armed forces are usually at the top. Um, I think it's fascinating in countries like Lebanon again, and probably in some others, that in addition to the armed forces, the other institution that is generally well regarded, though not as highly, you know, high profile, is the central bank. Um, and that would be a fascinating study for those who are interested in looking at the role of central banks in these countries, which have managed to uh, mitigate a lot of the worst problems, uh, which have kept their currency going somehow, which have managed to protect their gold reserves. In Yemen, until two years ago or so, the one thing that kept Yemen from famine was that the central bank still functioned. And the moment the Hadi government moved in and tried to take it over and block it from operating in the, in, in the Houthi areas was when the, the conditions went, you know, accelerated towards famine. Now, to come back to trust, um, there is a dilemma. You, you were talking mainly about policing, and of course the police are usually in much more direct contact with the population, and therefore tend uh, to have lower levels of trust because they get involved in corruption and taking bribes and kickbacks for issuing building permits and you know violating building per zoning laws, etc. And that's typical anywhere in the world. Um, but 
since I'm focusing mainly on the armed forces, I'm going to divert your question a little bit in the last few minutes towards something else, which is to explore or to propose that we need to think a lot more about the implications of armed forces that take on policing roles in many of these countries, uh, where in Lebanon, it's the Lebanese army that is regarded as holding the balance in the political arena and maintaining social peace between warring parties. And it gets sometimes blamed for that, sometimes not, but it's ended up where it has to be seen on every street corner for people to feel that things are okay. And of course, that's a huge burden on any armed force, some good for training, some good for operational effectiveness, etc. Um, but that's where the Lebanese army is. Now, in terms of helping social peace, to the extent that that is true as a supposition, as a hypothesis, then that's been a good thing. And why not? They're getting a salary after all. Um, but in other countries like Egypt, where you've got uh, the Ministry of Interior with anything from half a million to one and a half million people on its payroll, um, is failing so badly at providing basic security and basic policing that on several occasions Sisi um, authorized the army to provide basic protection services for public facilities, such as bridges, public hospitals, public universities, and other facilities. You have to ask, well, so what's wrong with the police? And he doesn't seem to trust them, uh, although he needs them on board politically. Um, and just uh, two years ago, I think, um, he issued a decree allowing the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of Interior to set up private security companies, which is bizarre because they're being paid to provide security, and now they're entitled to set up private security companies, obviously as an income means, uh, generating means. So not specifically about trust, but it's, it's, I think, fascinating to see this interplay of all these state institutions, coercive agencies that operate in the name of the state and on behalf of the state and funded by the state, legitimized by the state, and this interplay of roles. And I'm not saying that we should stick to an old-fashioned idea that the army is at the borders and the police are inside and that's a clear division of labor and that's, that's how it should be and nothing else can be. Everyone's entitled, I think, to play around with these roles and functions and redefine them. And most Arab constitutions or political systems uh, do actually authorize formally a public order role for the armed forces which in the U.S. Is, is performed by the National Guard, for instance, which is why the U.S. Army doesn't need to do it. Um, so, you know, trust, I want to broaden this out much more to how we understand what is legitimacy here, what, who legitimizes, what is it we're legitimizing, what are the functions we actually expect and demand of the armed forces or the police. Do ordinary citizens really care who's doing the shooting as long as the scary Muslim Brotherhood or the scary Kemalists, or whoever it is we don't like, are being thoroughly you know, put away by someone with a gun? I mean, do we really care? Um, and it's only when we come back to a normative notion of the state and of the institutions and how they should function and how we'd like them to function, be accountable, be transparent, be countable in the sense of we know where the pennies have gone and where the you know, pounds and liras and dinars have gone. When we want those things, we start worrying more about okay, let's demarcate, let's not duplicate functions, let's make sure that you all know what your tasks and missions are, have clear laws of establishment, and then make sure you enforce them and set up the paper trail. And I tend to come from that liberal technocratic school myself, but 
it keeps colliding with a lot of these realities. So I think I'll stop there again. Okay, that's it. Um, we are going to have to stop at eight, so I think we have possibly time for oh, yeah one more <laughs> question. So, so we have one lady at the back. Um, Two ladies at the back. Quick. If you can make it, if you can make your questions and answers very quick, then yeah. And I guess I should have said I'm happy to continue with the dialogue later on by email or something. I haven't got cards on yet. You should leave them, but you can get them to I guess Jessica or Rosa. Yeah, I would just want to, to follow up on what you were saying about Egypt because the, the change in constitution presently going on. Today? So, yeah, so mm -hmm. to, to go back to this um, social contract with citizens and the um, discussion or the conflict being very violent uh, related more than conflict resolution. So is there any role that the civil society can do in the middle of all this mess? Um. Thank you, Yazid. I just wanted to come back to the very painful question of the Palestinians. I hope you can bear it. Because you described so graphically how being armed, you have to be armed to be a political actor. But actually, the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, who are armed, uh, who could never have been armed between the occupation and Oslo, who are now armed, actually, it's a measure of their powerlessness, the way they are armed, that the, the security forces in the West Bank essentially are working on behalf of Israel and, and Hamas may be armed, but it's the biggest arm getter in the world. So I just really wanted you to comment on that, that it's maybe one of the, it, it denies, it contradicts essentially the picture that you painted, as far as I can see. Mm. Mm. Oh, I'm afraid you won't be able to do either of those questions justice. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Civil in Egypt, I don't, well, I mean, Briefly, I don't think the prospects are good, but that's part of a broader issue, whether it's civil society or you know the bourgeoisie, the middle class. I mean, where does political change come from is the question. Mm. And civil society, I want to move away from just because too often now it's come to mean NGOs and you know a business sector, if you like. Uh, but if we really mean social society and social forces, then who has the interest in a different kind of politics? And can that be divorced from I don't sound like an old-style Marxist, but mode of production. I mean, in other words, the political economy of how people generate wealth, how they acquire wealth, how they use wealth. Um, and Turkey here is, I think, a fascinating example. For me, it's always the counterpoint of why Turkey and Egypt went in these two very divergent directions, having started in the 1950s or earlier with very similar uh, strategies for industrialization and developing the country through local indigenous industrialization and substituting for imports. Um, Egypt ended up going in a totally different direction over the long term than Turkey did, although they started with very similar starting points, <coughs> culturally, religiously, all the rest. The difference is that Turkey, uh, for all sorts of reasons there's no time for, um, ended up developing a far more diverse and advanced economy, a uh, larger private sector economy, not that I'm trying to advocate for private sector as such, but just that what emerged out of that was a whole new middle class you know, the Anatolian bourgeoisies, uh, which became the voting base of the AKP and, you know, Fazilat and Refah before it. That was the basis of the transformation of Turkey and of the relationship between those in power and the army, without which what Erdogan did from 2002 and 2004 onwards especially would never have happened. And why it doesn't happen in Egypt? Because in Egypt the economy is still, 75% of the economy is private sector, in name, i.e., 
in terms of you know formal output, but much of that output is tied to public <coughs> contracts, to public procurement and public construction contracts. So the state is still the primary agent through which the private sector gets its income. Um, that transforms the politics in many, many, many ways. And the army is involved in this right now by giving out many of its own contracts that it runs. The subcontractors are all small and medium businesses. Some may be run by officers, but others not, through which it builds a different kind of social alliance. So, you know, I think to, to start to answer your question, we have to paint that broader picture. Um, Peron Palestine, um, I mean, I, I take the point. I think, first of all, to some extent, you're, you know, in Palestine, we're talking about police forces and not the armed forces, which are things that sort of sit somewhere else and sit in barracks with tanks or not. And I think it is interesting, this is sort of going back to the time when I was in the peace talks and trying to talk to the Palestinian leadership and get them to think or rethink what they wanted in the way of a police force or an armed force. And it was clear that, you know, for Arafat and generals like that, was, uh, or his generals, um, the idea that they, they, they sort of saw themselves standing at a podium watching the tax parade past. And the fact that anything they acquired, whatever it was, was within the range of ordinary, conventional Israeli artillery. I'm not talking F-16 aircraft or, you know, ballistic missiles. Just an ordinary cannon or, you know, artillery, 155 millimeter gun, anywhere in Israel could reach anywhere in the West Bank or Gaza. I mean, it doesn't need, you know, in other words, the entire Palestinian army, whatever, if it had ever emerged, would have been within ordinary gun range. What's the point of having it? Um, now, that's a whole interesting discussion of why do we want an army? Why do people want it? And sometimes they want it purely for that symbolic reason and for domestic, you know, not repression as much as it, it symbolizes to their domestic audience that they're, they're sort of a serious uh, state actor. In fact, the PLO back in the 80s and Lebanon in the 70s acquired Soviet-era World War II tanks that used to move about 10 meters and then stop and break down and they'd have to be fixed and they were left in sort of static position just because it made them look like a real state. So there's that. But then there's also, I think I disagree with you in that I've always felt that Palestine is interesting because when I look at it and I talk about sort of status processes and the emergence of thinking like a state, etc., and you get political scientists or others who say, but that can't be because Palestine is not a state, and therefore how can you think about things we associate with a state in the Palestinian case who are clearly not a state? And I think that misses the point about the, all these political processes that we identify and then say, this is the state of the United Kingdom or the state of USA or whoever. These are, at the end of the day, it's an abstract construct. We see it through particular, you know, through salaries, through institutions, through courts, through prisons. But in that sense, the Palestinian Authority has some of that, just as the Kurdish regional government in Iraq has some of that. And what we're looking at is maybe state building under constrained lim or limited sovereignty, absolutely. But at the end of the day, I'm talking about these deeper processes of who gets to use violence, how you organize violence, what you organize it for, and what implications that has for the political system that emerges, or vice versa, how the politics reflect on how we institutionalize the armed forces into one or two or many things. 
and whether they're ruled centrally or in a decentralized way, etc. Uh, how technology comes into that, the movement of capital, you know, of whether you've got a sort of socialist system or a capitalist market, etc. In that sense, I think that there's a bit of a, I've always fought against this idea that Palestine is somehow out of normal political science or social science, it's, it's, it's out of it all. We can't apply those things there, and I disagree. I think a lot of the time you can see them better, precisely because Palestine is a clear state. Right now, it's, it's weird, of course, because you've got these two entirely separate West Bank and Gaza, these very different zones. And Gaza, of course, is in a prison. I mean, it's cut off in a way that the West Bank isn't. But if you were to go in, zoom in, and look at how, say, the Palestinian private sector operates in the West Bank, how it goes about surviving, where it deals with the Palestinian police, but where it prefers to deal with Israeli security or whatever, I'm not so sure it's totally different than what the Syrians are doing today, or the Syrians in Afrin and Jarablus, which is under Turkish control, do today. How different is it really? I mean, the Turks aren't in occupation of Syrian territory the way Israel is of Palestinian territory, okay. I'm not, you know, being hostile. I'm just saying, though, in terms of analysis, when we look, we look at these processes, um, in all of these cases, I see individuals and groups trying to operate and navigate these very complex political economies as well as uh, coercive spaces. It's not just the coercion that's fragmented or you know, now running through several channels. So is political legitimacy and symbolism, identity, ideas, and economy. In many of these cases, the armed forces, I better stop, so I'll stop with this, that in many cases, the armed actors, whatever kind they are, are no longer just operating as armed actors and responding to whoever pays the salary. They are also economic actors. And I think that as that becomes deeper and deeper in Yemen or Iraq or Syria and elsewhere, that also makes it harder to shift a different kind of unitary framework and where these armed actors, the social communities they represent, whether they're tribal or ethnic or sectarian, uh, are not just sort of uh, identity actors with their armed wings, but they're also economic actors that start to reorder who they market with, who they buy from and sell to. And we see that very clearly in border zones, for instance, in Yemen with Oman, in Yemen with Saudi Arabia up in the north, in northern Syria, on Iraqi borders, in the Libyan border, Tunisian border. Many of these countries, if you look at what's happening in the economy, you see people reorienting in regions and peripheries away from their capitals and towards other towns and centers that might be across the border or elsewhere in their national territory. All this is happening together, so I don't see them in isolation. In that sense, Palestine, I think, is just as much that, where people in Hebron reorient to work with the Hebron market because they can't get to the Nablus market easily. It's, 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 it's somewhat distorted. I mean, everywhere is distorted, I think, in a sense, by something. But um, thanks for giving me the opportunity anyway, to go off on various tangents. Thanks for coming tonight. is, of course, that um, the breadth of your knowledge and most people, when they're happy to know about just one country, and you, of course, when you talk about the military, you're also talking about the politics and society, so um, thank you again. Um,